Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the KFD. I mean, the Cult Side Late Night Movie. We're not fucking around today because this movie's so long. Right there, you just seen the old 70s, 60s logo from Columbia. And with me tonight to do this is Nate Bradford. Say hello, Nate. How's it going? Hey, how's it going? And right here we Glad have Bounty Law with Bounty Law. Bounty Law. Brick Belton. Yeah. <laughs> There's the Wilhelm scream. One of my favorite things about this movie is you know it was a labor of love that Tarantino spent so much time doing all these little little parts of fake TV shows, fake movies, or even just referencing real TV shows and real movies. I mean, that you gotta you got to think of how much work went into just making this movie. This, yeah. this is a master. And I love this interview right here. This is a perfect introduction to them both. That's what I always talk to my wife about when we talk about TV pilots or movies. You know, you always have to have another party that is bringing you into the story, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, this this interview introduces the characters and it, you know, tells you who they are. It's the same, like, I I always tell my wife, the best TV pilot of all time is the pilot for Cheers. They introduce a new character who doesn't know any of the characters, and over the course of a half hour, she's introduced to each and every character. That's how a movie. That's how all movies should start. That's how all TV pilots should start. Introduce the characters with a third party that's not involved with the story initially. And of course, this interview doesn't come back in the film, but his presence right. introduces, introduces the main character. You know. Yeah. And these two characters, it's pretty much come out that yes. Uh, Rick Dalton is based on uh, Burt Reynolds during that time, and Brad Pitt is a cross between Hal Needham. Most y'all ain't. Most y'all would know Hal Needham from Smokey and the Bandit. Yep. Yep. Now. It's my understanding, too, that a lot of the basis of this film uh, was uh, was based on uh, when he worked. We were just talking about this before the show started. We were talking about Death Proof, right? Yeah. And when Tarantino actually got to see a stunt woman work with her partner on a movie, that's really what gelled this, this whole thing together. Right. Yeah, well, there's like three or four of the big stuntmen. There's uh, uh, Chuck Bale, which I'll really get into. There's a true story Chuck Bale's told in this movie. And, of course, the great guy from Satan Sadist, uh, Gary Clark, and his partner, John Bud Cardos. It's funny because Satan Sadist, I mean, I love it. I own a copy of it, but it's like you don't. This, it, 
like they're so kind of cheesy, but it, of course that seems exactly the type of Tarantino would be drawn to where he would say, oh, yeah, look at this, you know, look at these stunts, you know. <laughs> have you ever have you ever seen anything with uh, Gary Clark? I don't believe so. I mean, like I said, aside oh, from Satan Fade. I did a podcast I, I with him, and that was one of the greatest times. <laughs> I was like, Gary, this sums up uh, – Brad Pitt's character, too. Gary, why did you get into being a stuntman? He said, I went on the set, and I seen these guys falling off a horse, and I said, I want to do that. Oh. <laughs> uh, I love this, too. Now we're starting, like, right off the bat, you start getting into the Tarantino references, obviously, you know, the hood yeah. ornament. Yeah, and there's Gino. a reference right there to see if you can get. That DJ was a staple of New World Pictures as Rockin' Ricky Rialto. Oh, yeah. Right. He was in uh, the Nurses films. He was in uh, Rock and Roll High School. And he was in Gremlins, too. Really? I didn't. I never, I never knew he was in Gremlins. I can't, yeah, he was I the DJ remember. in every one of them. Yeah, I don't remember that from I don't remember that from Gremlins, but I mean I haven't seen Gremlins in a long time. I have, I have the the whole uh, you know like Alan Arkish, uh, you know Joe Dante box set, but Gremlins isn't in there. So I'm more for, I'm more familiar with the older films, but I haven't watched Gremlins in a long, long time. Yeah, but I am I am programming a Christmas. Uh, <laughs> I'm programming a Christmas film festival this year, and I was kind of yeah. trying to think of a, a third Christmas movie, and now you just got you got me on it. Gremlins, that's a, that's a good Christmas movie. Yeah, I love that. He said, that's a big and I love that instead of Tarantino or, or Samuel Jackson, who usually narrates his films, in this one we have Kurt Russell narrating it. Yeah, I know. When I when I first saw this, I was like, I I I thought Kurt Russell was going to actually show up at some point, but I was like, no, this is even better, you know. Okay, here's a here's a joke for you. Here's a reference for you. What is the fourteen fist of McCluskey based on? I don't know. Inglorious Bastards. The 14th Fist of McCluskey oh. is the movie version of Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> so this one is definitely I, set in the Tarantino universe. Right, because I know there are a bunch of references in this movie uh, to, like, Where Eagles Dare and other old uh, war films that Tarantino's yeah. a big fan of, like The Guns yeah. of Navarone. Eagles there uh, Apple cigarettes Combat Secret Invasion And I know there's a yeah. bunch of movies in Those were the big things are... back then Hell if you actually looked up the series Combat And looked up the series of who was in it You would shit But this right here Is sort of a version of The scene where they burned down the theater You know Oh yeah right Well yeah I I kind of I didn't take it as far back as you did. I kind of took this as kind of a in joke reference to Inglorious Bastards, you know. Yeah, this is the movie version of the movie. 
It's the movie inside the movie based movie. on a movie. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, I still I really like the fact going just going back a minute there. I really like the fact that like you know it really shows Hollywood's and respect to Tarantino. A star as big as Al Pacino would show up for you know one scene and just pop in, do his thing, and take off. You know, like that. Yeah. That, that seems super. That seems super cool to me. You know, like yeah. can you imagine having that hoping, kind of club? Yeah, and I'm hoping that people have seen this before. Is I did not expect him to use the gun theory. Especially right. when you've seen the flamethrower later in the movie. Yep, yep. That's funny too because I, I, I talk about that all the time when I'm talking to friends of mine who are trying to write something. I always bring up the gun theory, and I'm surprised how many people, even people who are successful writers who have sold novels or sold stories or sold screenplays, they're like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "You don't know Chekhov's gun theory." I'm like, well, and yeah, this is a perfect movie to introduce him. Why don't you go watch uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and then come back and let me know if you understand the gun theory. <laughs> and to sum it up real easy is that if you show a gun or lawnmower is in Dead Alive or something very prominent in the first scene, that you're going to have to use that in the final act. Indeed. Oh, here's some good stuff. Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen. I, I love I love him showing up in any Tarantino movie. He, especially now. I mean, of course, yeah. in in Reservoir Dogs, he was, uh, even though he was kind of the sleazy, you know, bad guy, of famously known for the whole uh, slicing off the ear scene. But now in the in the latter Tarantino movies, I love how he always just seems like he's so world weary and just you know he yeah, always loved him world. in Kill Bill. Yeah, yeah, he was great in Kill Bill. Yeah. And I love how he, he put this in television four by three aspect right here. <laughs> yep. That's funny. Uh Abby and it's I were open. talking about that the other the other night. Uh Abby and I were watching another movie. Oh uh, Hullabaloo. Hullabaloo. Yeah, Abby and I were watching another movie the other night that did that. Uh, whenever, oh no, we were watching that new Ricky Gervais show, Afterlife, and uh, whenever, whenever it switched over to uh, his home videos, it would go to the four three format, and yeah. then it would cut back to, yeah, it would cut back to. And here's cinematic another show. reference to you. Do you get what that reference is? We're going to go down behind the green door. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Behind the Behind Green, the Green Door. Yep. Door was a very famous adult film. It featured the first black-on-white sex scene ever in the movie to come out in the early 70s by the Mitchell brothers. Now, was Hullabaloo an actual TV show, or is that one that Tarantino oh, God, made yeah. up? Just... Hullabaloo. Yeah, Hullabaloo was like uh, the early version of American uh, Bandstand. It was, right. uh, yeah. It was an English right. show. Yeah. Huh. Oh, blue! I, I where we got kinescopes from. I had never heard that of that before, and I I kind of thought it was just something that Tarantino made up because you know I mean that's 
it's not beyond him to just kind of riff on something that he once liked and kind of molded into his own thing. So I never knew that was a real show. Have you ever heard of Golden Throats, that album from uh, Rhino? Yeah. That's what he was referencing to that, too, is where you would see all the big stars. They would record an album or a single. Right. Huh. You know, I mean, all this shit just... Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, this is, Leonard Nimoy doing uh, uh, the Legend of Bilbo Baggins. Uh, oh yeah, Rocket I have Man a copy by William that album. Shatner. I have I have those albums on vinyl. You know, I'm a big vinyl collector. Yeah. I have those yeah. Leonard Nimoy, William Shatner albums. Yeah. Yep. This scene is just so brutal. He's just telling him the truth. Yeah. Your career is over, dude. Unless you decide adapt or die, this is this yeah. Is <laughs> What's going to happen when the next big swing dick comes in? You just see him just. just uh, and that's what it, happens. It, you it, adapt it, or you die. It's really and that's cool a fact too because a lot you know, of them. Most forget that a lot of spaghetti western stars that we know were washed up or never been American stars before. Right? Clint Eastwood oh, was like the third. Oh, I love this line. It's race, racist, but I can love it. Oh, buddy, I'm a have been. You know what's really what I what I think is really brilliant about this movie though is the casting of these two guys. It's like, yeah. I mean, these are two actors who are really both at the Mexican. top of their game. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> actors who are at the top of their game right now, and I mean, shit, you know, Brad Pitt won an Oscar for this role, but they they both it. play like they they both play the washed up like has beens like so well, you know, like that that's really I mean really look like, how leather and look how much like a real stunt man Brad Pitt look. Yeah, they both they both look like they're aged and, and worn out. I mean it makes me wonder like if they just did very little makeup and they're like, well this is what these guys look like in real life because they actually are middle aged men. I now. honestly yep. love the old school seventies stunt men. The ones that you would say, Hey, we want you to jump off a cliff and they'd be like, Where do you want to land? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like I said, that's why I think a lot of this has to do with like Tarantino really admiring like you know, stunt actors that and you know. And for a quick reference, uh, this was the song that the Manson girls sung on their way to trial after they had carved the swastikas in their yep. head. Right. Yeah, th- I love the fact it's on the periphery, but he introduces the whole Manson aspect early. Yeah. But the one thing I noticed, uh, the one thing I noticed about the the movie, and I may be wrong. I mean, I've watched this film like ten times since it came out. Mm-hmm. But 
like Manson never actually does show up, although he's shown in the trailer, right? Yeah. Oh no, he's in for one or two scenes. Yeah, he there is that one scene where he's leaving Sharon Tate's house. Yeah, yeah think, that's think, it, that's it. I think it's the scene where Brad Pitt is fixing the antenna on his house and he sees Manson leaving yeah. the house. Yeah, but in the trailer it showed him at the Spawn Ranch, but I don't think that scene was actually included in the film. We'll have, we'll have to see when we get there, but I don't recall him actually being... Yeah, he's, not real, he's there, but he's not there, which I think is a good call. Because if you want to take the piss out of the boogeyman, which this movie is trying to do, and that's what a lot of people didn't get, you don't give the boogeyman a prominent face. Right? Oh, yeah. fuck you, I love... Like right here. Yep. Oh, yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, everything Brad Pitt does in this movie is gold. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading something online uh, the other day about this car that Brad Pitt drives, too. That yeah. was a vehicle that Tarantino specifically wanted for the film, and they couldn't find one, so they actually had a they had it built. They had that designed. If you didn't know the history, would you give a shit that he just pulled up in Celio Drive? No, see, that, and see, like I said, like, you know, Abby's not as much about, like, serial killers and conspiracy theories and stuff as I am. So when we saw this in the theater, when they pulled up and they showed that shot of the sign, I was like, ooh, and she was like, what, what, (laughs) what? Yeah, you can't deal with 1969 without dealing with that issue. But we'll get to it when we get close to that. But I love this. Yep. Here's another character that's not in the movie that much. Right. Well, he did have to run off to France fairly quickly. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he was uh, casting a film over there, I think, a setting up a film. Right. No, but I was more making a joke about him being a child molester. Because <laughs> he, he came back from France after after the murders, but he didn't. Yeah. Then he went back. Then he went That's back. That's the whole mess murder. between him and LAPD. I'd take like a whole show as is. We don't want to talk about it. Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> A friend of mine was just in the other day. He was like, I really want to, he's like, my, my kid's growing up, and I really want to show him Rosemary's Baby, but first we're going to have to have a very difficult and Edward talk O'Brien, about if you remember, he was the star of uh, Dr. Cyclops. Yeah, right? Audie Murphy. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's kind of weird. Like I never, you know, I, I try to kind of consider the dynamic between these two characters because it's like they're friends, but technically, you know, Brad Pitt is his employee, you know? Yeah. And I think that, well, that, that actually I think did that happen was, with uh, Hal Needham and uh, Burt Reynolds. Right. Yeah. But you can see it, like, I mean, you can see it more in that realistic way with Burt Reynolds. Uh, I love yeah. the fucking song I right hear. Yeah. So, and Tarantino's done something I haven't seen a director in a long while do with this scene. Just take a basic driving yeah. scene and make it just interesting to look at. Yep. And I You're now seeing L.A. Yeah. I love all these shots, and I, I, read, I read a lot when this, before this movie came out, just about the amount of time and effort that they put into recreating the school LA and yeah. I mean it's amazing. Like I that it's no surprise to me. No surprise to I me. I could have watched the whole movie him just driving around like this if he would have shot it like this. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> they don't know how to make just plain driving things visually interesting nowadays. That's when Tarantino, everything he does is visually interesting. Like, there's an OKFC sign and all that. You're just looking right. at it going, wow. Oh, uh, he he better be going to see Pretty Poison. Van Eyes. Pretty Poison's what playing. what's playing when he drives up. It, yeah, it says... Uh, it says Pretty, Pretty Poison is the second feature. Yeah, see? But that's not that's not the main that's not the main show. Yeah, the main well the main show played first. Oh ye yeah. of no drive in experience. <laughs> I love So if this is about nine nine thirty so it says about ten o'clock, nine nine thirty or so, which probably when he got home. Right. No, right now we're in intermission. Right. <laughs> There's the world famous one of the dog hot dog jumping in the bun. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> the very Freudian one. And here comes the one I think should have won Best Actress of last year, damn it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think you give Oscars to animals, Steven. <laughs> I don't care it's Brandy, she's cool. Right. Maybe they have. We should, we should look into that. I wonder if they have given. At some point, there must have at least been a Yeah, she comedy. won Best Dog at the Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Robert Goulet. <laughs> There's only one thing to show in Mannix. I thought Mannix was a 1970 show. Yeah. Champion beer. I've, I've caught on to a couple of things that uh, I've had to fact check because I felt the same way where I was like, wait a second. Yeah. I think 
But you know, I mean, that's that's Tarantino for you, though. You know, he, he's I'm famous sad that for I didn't kind get that of that limited edition T-shirt that had that on there. Yeah. Good food for bad dogs, raccoon flavored. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Just... <laughs> I've actually got the poster to that on my wall, man. Yeah. Yeah. I picked it up at the convention. This guy was selling a lot of the old uh, poster, a wooden old cardboard poster for like three bucks a piece. So I just went nuts. Nice. I got Savage Messiah, the Bobo, Three in the Attic, Heaven's Gate. Nice. <laughs> Kid Cold Outlaw, Sergeant Fury. When it showed that, um, I never noticed that before. When it showed that uh, TV guide, was that Jack Davis art on the cover? Oh, God, yeah, Jack Davis. Yeah, I never noticed that before. Honey West. He had a Honey Honey West thing because he's mentioned her in I don't know how many movies. Right? You're wondering what's that weird accent that he's doing. That's not an Oklahoma accent. <laughs> no. Well, you I would know. know you, live- you know why? <laughs> That's my fucking accent. A Knoxville, East oh. Tennessee accent. That's what I said. No. <laughs> <laughs> you- Look, there was another Jack Davis drawing of uh, Rick Dalton. Yeah, did you see? Actually, uh, I bought that last year. They actually released that uh, issue of Mad Magazine. Um, they, they oh, did you mean issue the overly Mad expensive Mag- version I didn't buy because I only had like $100 to play with? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it wasn't anything special. They just put that on the cover, but then they just reprinted a bunch of old uh, Mad Magazine stuff from 1969. The, the only new oh, material God. in there. The only new material in there was a spoof of of uh, uh, I can't remember if it was Django Unchained or Inglorious Bastards. They, they, they did a spoof of uh, did a spoof of one of Tarantino's movies, but the rest of it was all just reprinted stuff from the sixties. But Am I, I still Am bought I, it. Yeah. What's funny is this story that Steve McQueen tells is the truth. Right? Yeah, this is actually what happened. Steve McQueen was dating Sharon Tate, as in the movie, and then she dumped him for 
The hairdresser. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. Nah. Last year was the year of two great great movies. Well, no, got to go back a year ago. But two great movies that can't, that use this song in it. One was this, and the other one is Bad Times at the El Royale. If you haven't seen that, yep. man, God. Oh, no, I, I saw it. I saw it. Yeah, that I liked that movie a lot. Yeah. I thought I thought it was the best Tarantino movie that Tarantino didn't direct aside from True Romance. <laughs> oh, no. But. In case you... My dad played it for me when I was a kid and my heart just boom. It's kind of weird, Sebring. though, because... Do you know what other movie is a nom de cliff of Jay Sebring's story? No. Shampoo with Warren Beatty, which we did about a month ago, and you can check that out in the archives. All right. Check it out in the archives, folks. I I remember seeing when you put the, put the post up that you guys were going to be doing that one. I haven't seen that movie ever. Oh, it's good. And it's oh, I'm, sad, I'm too, once, if you want, you know, with the whole J.C. bring angle. Right. I never knew this song before this movie, but good God, have I played the hell out of it since I've seen this movie. I'm so right. You, you, said, you said you were listening to the soundtrack earlier today. <laughs> I don't know why I look forward to more when Tarantino puts the movie out. The movie or the soundtrack? I actually, I think there were a lot of tracks on this uh, soundtrack that were a little more mainstream than some of the digging that he usually does, but, I mean, well, I don't... Well, it's 1969, I, I, he had to put you in the place. And this right here, yeah. what he says is actually how it all went down. Hey. And I would love how, how he just stops the movie just so Steve McQueen can tell that damn story. Be by the A young Christoph Waltz. Oh, no. I love that song. The way that this interaction is directed, even the way it's written, almost reminds me of David Lynch. (laughs) 
I love this punchline right here. And I yeah. never stood a fucking chance. Yeah, right? <laughs> God, that guy looks just, except for the hairdo, he looks just like a Steve McQueen. Right? You want to love and you can't. I guess I never really thought about it until just now, but like I said, that the the way that scene ends with the two of them talking, it does kind of remind me, like just just like the cadence and the the way that it's framed, it kind of remind it does remind me a lot of David Lynch, huh? Yeah. In case you're wondering why Polanski acts like as he never liked that little fucking dog. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And just looking at Margaret Roby right here and knowing what happened to her character, the tragedy, you know. Because at this point of film, we're thinking we're counting down to her death. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, not like it's unusual for Tarantino to to mark the – screen with, with, you know, times or dates, but it's particularly poignant in this movie because obviously we all, anyone who has any knowledge about the dancing, there's no what's coming up. I mean, whenever we have a time countdown in this movie, you know something big's going to happen. I told my wife I was going to dress up like Brad Pitt for Halloween this year from this movie. Yeah. And, and she said she's going to dress up like Rick Dalton. <laughs> yeah, you're Rick fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it. <laughs> Do train. <laughs> I love that everyone else is so professional. He's just walking around like a goof. Yeah, right? Well, I think there's supposed to be kind of a, like a schlub aspect to it, you know? Like, on the one hand, you're supposed to feel bad for him because he's a big star on his way back down. But on the other hand, you know, you're, you know, you're supposed to see that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe he wasn't as big a, a shit as he thought he was, you know? Yeah. Well, do you know who he's talking to? In this scene? Yeah, the actor. No, I don't know. Who is it? That's fucking Spider-Man from the 70s TV show series. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to love that old 70s Spider-Man show. I love how he gets the little guys like this and just lets them just... Tear ass. Right? 
If you well, notice, you know, he, I mean, when he gets the uh, all the gear on, he looks just like Dennis Hopper from uh, Easy Rider. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that was that's supposed to be the point, right? I mean, we're talking about a guy who's coming out of a career from the, you know. Yeah. Yeah, he's at an age where he's still not completely out of it, but time's passed you. Well, hell, we're all like that in the 33, 34. We're like, yeah, time ain't passed me by. I'm still cool. I'm still hip. Right? Christ, man, I'm almost 50, and I still dress like a skater kid from the friggin' 90s. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean... Unless I have a reason to put on a shirt and tie, I just put on a T-shirt with a cartoon character on the front and a pair of baggy jeans and sneakers and go about my day. <laughs> yeah, combat. That's Vic Morrow there holding the rifle. Yeah. And what he's covering up is, uh, I forget who his name was, but he was the L.A. Horror host at the time. Mm, yeah, I never really knew any of the West Coast horror hosts. Uh, I I grew up here besides in, uh, the one and only. Uh, I had like Gugliardi and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Freaking Paul Thomas Anderson's dad was that was was that Gugliardi that was Paul Thomas Anderson's dad? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, those were the, those the were whole, horrible. Yeah. A whole fucking conversation there. Without saying a fucking word. Right? And Pandora's Box, that was a well-known uh, sex and fetish shop back then. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I know where all the perverted stuff is. What does that say about me? <laughs> Yeah There's a new documentary On Netflix I haven't watched it But there's a new documentary on Netflix I can't recall the name off the top of my head So It's really not even worth bringing up Since we're doing a friggin podcast right now But uh, it's all about uh, the, The Fetish Sex shops Uh in San Francisco back around this same time. Yeah. Oh, and did you notice when he was in there, they showed the flame flower again? Yep. Check off And those gun. t-shirts were popular in the early 70s. Yeah. The champion spark plug t-shirts. Well, that's why I said I was going to dress up uh, like like him for Halloween because I have one of those shirts. <laughs> I just got to find a yellow a Hawaiian shirt and I'll be all set. Especially since I've been in friggin' isolation for so long that my hair is about the same style as he's got. There is only about maybe a few directors that I will make sure and kill people to go see their movies the first week out. 
Tarantino was like a number one on that freaking list. Oh, yeah. It's not a movie I was here, I didn't see the first week out. I don't really go to the movies that often. I mean, I, I I'll watch a, I'll wait and watch a movie at home, but there are a couple of directors that I will definitely go out and see every time first weekend out in Tarantino. I mean, you know, the last podcast we did together was with uh, me and you and Carl talking about our favorite movies from last year and just my number one. Yeah. I saw this I saw this in the times as I could. Oh, and uh, do you remember when I said earlier about uh, Chuck Bale? Yeah. Well, and this is a true story. Uh, Bruce Lee was uh, get uh, was afraid because he was the only Japanese person on the set, so he was uh, getting a little fresh with the other stuntmen. So huh. the director... Called in Chuck Bale. And what did Chuck Bale do right before their fight scene, before they're doing karate? He grabbed, he went up behind Bruce Lee and grabbed him all around the waist, pinning his arms to his chest and everything, and just carried him around. And Bruce Lee is screaming, put me down, put me down. (laughs) And Bale was like, what did you say, what did you say? And after he let him down, they became best friends. And Bruce Lee got Chuck Bale to teach him how to grapple, which Bruce Lee didn't know how to do. And Bruce Lee taught him how to do Kung Fu, which Chuck Bale didn't know how to do. So now, do you think, I mean, this is the only scene that actually has Kurt Russell in it, despite the fact that he does the narration in some of the other scenes. Do you yeah. think he's supposed to be the same character? Like, do, do no, you think probably his narr- brother. Right, when he's doing the narration. Unless it's a movie movie and he has the starring role in the movie. Right. And I love this, that they don't say what happens. In fact, after knowing and getting to love his character, you still don't know. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And this is not a female thing. If a male was doing this same kind of bitching as a female, yes, I would definitely condone shooting them with a freaking spare gun. <laughs> like, you always wonder, like, uh, the true story of, like, the whole Natalie Wood, Charlie Chapman, uh, who else was yeah, on that? Yeah, I know. The Natalie Wood thing with uh, Christopher Walken and uh, what's his name from Heart to Heart. Yeah. Her husband. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but yeah. That was the whole crazy. I think I'm mixing up two stories in my mind because there was the Natalie Wood, uh, yeah, Christopher Walken thing, but then. Uh, was the and one? how sad that this one. here is the most controversial freaking scene in a movie. Well, so they 
So they say. People have complained about it, but. He beats I mean, No, he doesn't. They get in two mm-hmm. lucky shots. We don't get to see mm-hmm. the fight. And yes, he actually did say that. <laughs> That's why he started Jeet Kune because he was tired of the normal forms of what they call the karate. Right? accidentally kill someone, they go to jail. That's <laughs> called man oh, manslaughter. <laughs> yeah, I remember there was a whole lot of controversy about this scene when the movie came out between... Yeah, Bruce Lee's daughter, who is basically yeah. her dad is a meal ticket. That Bruce would never get his butt kicked in a fight. Are they forgetting one think- of Bruce Lee's most famous quote? Which is, on any day, I could beat any man in the world. But I also, on any day, any man in the world could beat me. Right? You never know. Yeah, that's how fights work. (laughs) (laughs) People are just more willing to believe the myth. Oh, shit. <laughs> he didn't even lay a thumb on him. I mean, he just 
dodged him. Yep. And here comes the goddess of this movie, the stunt coordinator herself. Mm-hmm. One, right. One of the craziest one of my well, I just love all stunt men and women. But she was the best well, part of death proof. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's what I was saying earlier when we were first talking about how I think she was probably one of the one of the real inspirations for this movie because I mean, she was the stunt she was the stunt double for uh Uma Thurman in the Kill Bill movies. Oh. And then she I mean, she does those friggin' stunts in Death Proof that are just insane. Oh, God. <laughs> Unless you've been married, you don't understand why Kurt Russell is so scared right there. <laughs> Get your... <laughs> to be fair, I didn't know it was your wife's car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here he is Basically the only scene where you see Manson There is another scene with him That was cut from this movie Yeah that's what I was saying Is in the trailer There's another scene that they show There are a few scenes in the trailer That aren't in the movie And, it, and one of them definitely has Manson in it But it's yeah. just like a quick What happens is Uh the scene that's cut is him walking up to the Tate House door, looking for Terry Melcher. Blah 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 blah. This is historical fact. Uh, Sebring has said said to a couple of his friends that there was some weirdo that walked up and asked for Jay. You know Terry. I love it. Just that simple scene, there's that tension in the freaking air. Yeah, for sure. He just but like you, he's like, yeah, you know it's coming. Yeah, you know it's coming. Well, it's like you said, it comes from preconceived notions that, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, we all know the ending of the movie, although it, not necessarily because, you know, we've all... If you're a Tarantino fan, you've seen Inglorious Bastards, and you know that the ending is not necessarily historically correct. Yeah, and unlike, and he kept this the last third of this movie. We'll get it more when it gets to the last third. 
very, very tight and secretive. And this little girl should have gotten nominated at least for Best Supporting Actress. That was bullshit. I I, I saw uh, some stuff coming up um, leading up to the uh, the Golden Globes and the Oscars, and there was a lot of buzz around her. But, yeah, she didn't – yeah, she is really great, and she's only in this movie for a few minutes. But, yeah, she is really good. I think we'll probably be hearing some more from her in the future. <laughs> I love it. She just... just... Well, I, I think, don't know what it... I think... I think a lot of this, too, is kind of like what we're talking about with the overall theme of the film. It's like, here he is making friends with someone who, for all intents and purposes, is totally going to replace him in the in the world made his name, you know? Yeah, the 70s when the women and stuff really started taking over in the leads and all that. Right. He he's the old he's the old guy who's on his way out and she's the she's the young woman who's coming up in the industry, you know. Yeah, you know how well how Once Upon a Time in the West, which of course, you know, he loves that movie, was about the death of the West. Yep. This movie is really about the death of old Hollywood. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's you know, it's no, it's no small uh, coincidence that Roman Polanski is featured as a character because he was definitely one of the directors, along with you know your Scorsese's and uh, you know uh, Coppola and and all those guys who kind of just like took the ball and ran with it, like you said. In this scene, he's dressed like Dennis Hopper from uh, friggin' uh, Easy Rider. Easy easy Rider. It's no secret that, you know, Tarantino is definitely, like, trying to bridge that gap and show, like, yep, this, this was the last hurrah for a lot of these guys. But then, like you said, he, he's always been famous for bringing old, old actors that have made, I mean, for crying out loud, Jackie Brown, Robert Forrester, you know, I mean, Pulp Fiction, uh, John Travolta, you know, like he's famous for, for drudging up actors who have been, you know, reduced to B movie roles in the last 20 years and putting them back in starring roles in movies that actually go on you know, gain a claim. So, you know, Tarantino appreciates, you know. And D. Cocteau, that's a love note to one of our favorite directors, the guy who directed Celebrity Slime Balls (laughs) and uh, Faith Bonorama and other ones. David D. Cocteau, Nightmare Sisters. (laughs) I miss those. Cheap pulp paperbacks. 
Yeah, I there. That's the thing about the area where I live. Uh, there are a lot of like old. Uh, there are a lot of used bookstores that specialize in really old old books. So I collect. You know, anytime I find anything old, uh, like old paperbacks like that. Uh, I don't really collect westerns as much, but I'm really into like the science fiction stuff. So I'll grab those up anytime I can. So. I collect I collect uh, movie tie-in novels, and I try to stay in at the low end of the pond because that shit yeah. can get deep real freaking quick. I think I sent you I think I sent you a couple of uh, movie tie-in novels that I found at used yeah, bookstores they, around. Yeah, that was uh, they went that way and that way. All right. <laughs> yeah. I love that he has his whole character already told out his life. Right. He's telling how he feels now that he's lost his stride. I can relate to this, too, because, you know, like, uh, a lot of my friends have kids that are about this age now, and they're really curious about, you know, they've grown up with you, and so they feel comfortable around you, and they're really curious about your about your life, quite understand how adulthood works, but they will ask you questions about life, and it's kind of easy to talk to kids and tell them, you know, like, yeah. This you know, this is how life sometimes works yeah. out. So you know. I mean, I love it. He's telling him about himself, you know. Right. <laughs> I love this right here. It just seems like a really sad book. <laughs> There we go. In about 15 years, you'll be living it. (laughs) Oh, shit. She's really a 70s feminist. Yeah, right. And then this song comes up. If you really look at the lyrics of this, it fits. It's basically a story about a child who's born, and then she grows up and gets gets fucked by life, and ends up a sad, lonely person. And that's another thing that pays off to her scenes. It's like we know that she's driving along happy. She's a star. She's going to have a baby. She's married to the man she loves. But she's only got months left. (laughs) 
doesn't make it worse just showing her as a nice, you know. Are you there? Yeah. No, I was. Yeah, I was just. I was just watching for a second. Um. Yeah. I mean. I mean, obviously that that's the funny thing. I was I was trying to think about what to say because obviously you and I have both seen this movie several times and we're just kind of chit-chatting about it now. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who's watching now that hasn't seen it all the way to the You're end watching before. This now and you haven't seen it before. What the fuck is wrong with you? Watch the movie first. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, the thing is, you know, you when a lot of times when people talk about the ending of this film, they talk it brings up that same old tired argument that Tarantino was a misogynist, he hates women and you know, yada yada yada, but with the limited amount of time that Margot Robbie has in this film, he really does his best to humanize her and make it, yeah. you know, so like really yeah, make you see that she was just a normal, you know, even as a movie star and married to a director and living in Hollywood Hills in the 60s, she was just kind of a normal gal who, yeah. uh, you, know, you know, just trying to enjoy life. I mean, this scene right here is a perfect example. What's she doing? Buying a book and going to the movies? Like, that's what I would do on a normal afternoon. You know? <laughs> no, she's buying a copy of Tessa de Obervilles for uh, Polanski, which is, I think, a film that he did two or three times. He did it maybe, yeah. He did it towards the end of the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, he did direct a version of that. Um, that And, I mean, that that scene, uh, as far as I understand from what I've, from what I've read about uh, the Manson murders, uh, that that scene is kind of uh, is kind of phony because he didn't buy yeah. uh, she didn't buy the book. Uh, oh, I love it. this poor film music here. Yeah, remember how uh, earlier in the film uh, they they talked about swinging dick that's going to take over. Yeah. Well, there's your swinging dick right there, played by Timothy yeah. Oliphant. Yeah. I if love you haven't this, seen like, Justified or Deadwood, preferably Justified, oh yeah. you need to go watch those. Oh yeah. Those are good. I love this, like the way that they that they put uh, that they put him into these scenes with the you know the the you know CGI, and now you look at you look at these scenes. You look at those scenes, and then you obviously you've seen The Irishman, where yeah. they did the, where they did the. Yeah, this know, is where they did it right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is where they did it right. <laughs> right. I love The Irishman. It's just there's just something not right, and I could say yeah. one of the biggest things is that. Robert De Niro still fought like there. Oh, and there was a Larry Cohen tribute. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I uh, mean, 
you can't have a guy look thirty year old and then him still fight like an eighty year old man. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm not saying to make fun of. I'm just saying that I would have used uh, De Niro's face from that. I would have just hired a thirty year old guy with a body shape just to do the ass whipping. Right. <laughs> And this was, I, know, I think, the last or the second to the last of the Matt Helm movies. There were four of them. And they were a very popular James Bond knockoff. Right. Uh, Matt Helm movies were the culture. The Flint films were the counterculture ones. The girl from Valley of the Dolls. That's me. <laughs> oh, who would take credit for that? <laughs> oh, besides the fact that she was the only one that was good in that movie. I like Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> no, I'm not saying she wasn't good in it. I'm just saying that everybody else sucked. Especially Patty <laughs> Duke going after the pills. Right. <laughs> I need the dolls. I need them. <laughs> Stand over by the poster so people will know who you are. <laughs> You know that guy looks just like, holding the book for, looks like Mr. Lobo. Oh, and who directed that movie on the wall, The Mercenary? The Mercenary? Yeah. Sergio Corbucci. Oh. Oh, and there's Big Bill Smith. William yes, Smith, sir. and that's from... CC and Company. If you haven't seen that one, don't fucking worry about it. <laughs> Just imagine Joe Namus as a tough biker who's supposed to be whipping William Smith's ass. Ah! An AFCO embassy. Uh... I wonder how much of the the how many of the props and movie trailers and stuff that they show in this movie are just part of Tarantino's personal collection. Probably. And I want to watch I mean, when I get old, old. I want a white hair do like that guy on the stage. Yeah. And it, it, this used to be something to make fun of him, and now it's become a running joke. I think he does this as a joke now. Because all the people that say that. Right. look how dirty them damn feet is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, one of the, uh, there's like a, you know, a YouTube video that's, there's a whole series of them, but like how to know if you're watching a Scorsese movie, how to know if you're watching a Wes Anderson movie. And then there's one that's how to 
know if you're watching a Tarantino movie, and at the, the last part of it, it's like, and feet. You're going to see lots and lots of feet. <laughs> hey, at least he can get away with it, get away with it, unlike certain other fetishes. Right? <laughs> I actually, uh, I have a friend who lives in the same neighborhood as Tarantino, and uh, he says that a lot of times in the past, Tarantino is married now, but he did say that a lot of times in the past he would be out on his front porch in the morning uh, drinking coffee and he'd see women walking down the hill from Tarantino's house uh, and they'd be wear- either be wearing sandals or they'd be carrying their shoes and just walking down the hill barefoot. <laughs> like So... <laughs> If that's true, then obviously Tarantino picked him up somewhere the night before. Like, hey, I like your, uh, I like your feet. Uh. <laughs> yeah, he'd be going shrimping. Hey, yep, he's going shrimping. <laughs> I love, I love how this is shot. In case you're wondering, with the way the guns is and stuff, this is shot like the great Sam Fuller's. Forty guns. (laughs) Business, Bob. It's kind of weird the way that they shot so much of this with, like, you know, like Tarantino kind of leaned into, like, the TV shows and, you know, yeah. he does the spaghetti and stuff. But, but this, he kind of just sticks with the, the same format that he's using for the overall film. I mean, you're right. He directs it the same way, but he, like... He doesn't change up the film stock or the or the saturation or anything. I mean, you can tell what genre from his past four movies is his favorite genre. Oh yeah. And that music is from Cemetery Without Crosses. It's not on the soundtrack. Yeah, I was looking through uh I was looking through earlier today because I was thinking about the actual soundtrack to this film and I was actually looking through scrolling through because I knew we were going to watch this together tonight and I was kind of just looking through to see what some of the other movies because I know he loves to snatch little segments of of tunes from other films I think I had uh, I had read initially that this, like you said, obviously his last couple of films have been westerns, and 
Tarantino, I think, was actually planning on just making this movie as his next movie, and then he kind of he kind of spun out from it and decided to do the wraparound story of the stuntman, and then uh, because yeah. this this whole film began life. Tarantino's been talking a long time about how when he retires from filmmaking, he wants to. Oh, uh, what happened? What happened? Yeah, he's talking about he wants to retire. Welcome back. Yeah, I got I got cut off, but that's all right. Um, but what? Yeah, no, he was one. Of, he's going to be a writer. Uh, the Hateful Eight started out as a novel. He was going to do a series about Django, and it was called Django White, Black Man in White Hell. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and like I said, I had read that he was initially going to publish this. Uh, as a novel, and then he had, like, so it was two separate ideas. He had the idea for a novel about the the Manson murders, and he was going to do another Western to follow up after the Hateful Eight, and then the two, like, like we were talking about earlier, he saw a relationship between a stuntman and an actor that really inspired him. Uh, I do, I do think it was Zoe Bell, that he initially, maybe not initially, but I do think it was his uh, relationship with Zoe Bell uh, when she worked on a couple of his films that really inspired him to kind of run with the whole stuntman and actor thing, and then he combined the two ideas. So, oh, this is I painful. Mean, yeah, right? <laughs> if you've ever been on stage telling a joke and you forget the joke, or you've had a podcast where things go horribly wrong I, you will know this I, I, pain you know me man uh, as a stand-up comedian i uh i actually went on stage like when when i when i'm gonna perform as a stand-up comedian when i'm gonna go out and do my shows i don't drink or anything i go on stage sober so i can get through my material and and uh yeah. there was one there was one night when I went to a comedy contest and I had been drinking all afternoon and some friends of mine picked me up and drove me to this comedy contest and I kept drinking while we were at the bar and then all of a sudden the woman who was hosting the show was like, all right, well, we're we're short, so uh, we need one more comedian. Nate Bradford, come on up. And I went up on stage. I was so drunk that luckily a lot of the other comedians in the audience were friends of mine who had seen my act enough times. They were like whispering the punchlines to my jokes to me while I was on stage because I was too drunk to remember my actual punchline. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's bad. If I had a trailer, I probably would have done uh, what happens right after this scene. (laughs) I think my episode was Tessa Dick. Imagine someone who's paranoid and stoned off their ass on psychedelics doing a whole show talking about how the government was wanting to kidnap her husband, Philip K. Dick. Right. (laughs) I was just (laughs) after the show. I I had to apologize to Carl afterwards because I was using just every language in the book because he's the one who booked it. I'm like, Carl, about that beep, 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 (laughs) beep. Right? And I know Carl is a huge Philip K. Dick fan, so I bet he, yeah, I'm sure he felt bad about it, too. Here we go. So, of course, this has been famously documented. This has been famously documented as one scene that was not actually in the script. Yeah. From what I've I've seen and read, this was just a, you know, random ad lib that Tarantino decided uh, to go with because he thought it, you know, he thought it fit the tone of the, the situation. Stop fucking drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Your fucking brains out. Originally, instead of this scene right here, it was supposed to be hit, uh, Rick walking to the set, only to the good and the bad and the ugly scene. <laughs> you know, because this was his moment, do or die. Or Tarantino posted in the interviews his uh, wild bunch moment. I'm surprised Tarantino didn't go with that because he's been more than vocal about the fact that the good, the bad, and the ugly is like his favorite film of all time, so. And this Maybe is he's actual saving fact, that. too. After he met Chuck Bale, Chuck Bale was filmed with, uh, friends with uh, Jay Sebring, and Sharon needed someone to train her for this movie here. So he he told her to get Bruce Lee, that Bruce Lee was the best trainer in the valley. Yep. I've I've heard that too. I actually I I actually knew that before I ever saw this flick and started reading stuff about it when they were working on it, but yeah. Yep, I 
I do believe that to be true as well. From what I've heard, yep, Sharon Tate and Bruce Lee oh, trained and that together. Fight is also sure. taken from the Steven Seagal incident too. What it is is Steven Seagal was talking on shit like no one could fuck with me. I don't have keto. No one could fucking what sneak up on me and take me out. So Bell was right behind him, grabbed him, put him in a sleeper hold. Had him knocked out, shit, shit, and piss his pants in under thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> were they were they working? Were they like training together, or they were just no? They were doing around. a film together, and Seagal was talking that usual shit. Right. <laughs> and here's some more of the great driving scenes. Ooh. Right. And that haircut is where Sebring worked. Yeah, I see. Yeah, the haircuts. uh, Yeah. I love the dialogue in this scene right here. Oh, no. <laughs> this is really the scene where uh, the, uh, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and Manson's world really get intertwined with each other. Yeah, this uh, yeah the Spawn Ranch scene is my favorite scene in this whole movie. I mean it it you know being as as long as this movie is, it doesn't really seem like it should be. But I really think this is kind of like the climax of the movie. This is where everything comes together. And I know we still have to wait another half hour for the explosive like ending. But yeah, this whole this whole spawn this ranch right here is the end of the first act. Yeah, the second act is this, the shortest act. Yeah. But but I I do like the second act too. We'll get into it when we get there. But I do yeah. like all the they they do a lot of like the quick you know quick stuff with uh, with uh, the spaghetti westerns and all that stuff like really like one right after the other. All the different crazy TV shows and stuff that yeah. happen. But yeah, but in a way, I think that that kind of counts as like part 
it, it leads up to, to to the, I guess you would say the overall redemption. You know, like so he's not as down and out as you think he is. You know, yeah. he he has, he has a second life. And and in a way that that's kind of even Tarantino patting himself on the back, saying, "Hey, remember all those actors and actresses that you thought were gone forever? Yeah. Well, guess what? I, I, I saved them." <laughs> but yeah, it's funny Hello, though. You it's know, how old uh, are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I think is really funny about this movie, though. Uh, I was thinking about this earlier today again because I I knew you and I were going to watch it together. I think what's really funny about this movie is how sprawling it is. Like not it, just like all of that, like you were saying, all the driving scenes where they're doing the the huge backdrops and all of the props and everything that they put into this. Remember. Quentin Tarantino's first film, a little movie called Reservoir Dogs that took place 99% of the time in a friggin' empty warehouse. Yeah. And now here and now here we are all these years later in this sprawling like rebuilt landscape, Hollywood 1969, you know, like uh I mean, he's come a long way, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, what I am is too old to do jail for Pone Dang. Amen. <laughs> yeah, in my 20s, I'd be like, hey, little girl, school girl, I'm a schoolboy too. 30, <laughs> I don't know. 40, 50, I'm just too old. To, I'm too old to go to jail. <laughs> See, this was supposed to be darn da da da. Yeah. Right. No, Tarantino's feeling, but Tarantino's saving that for his last movie. I mean, he already blew up a little bit in uh, when they introduce uh, Hugo Stiglitz in Inglorious Bastards and they do the real quick, like, good, the bad, and the ugly, like, bing, gunshot sound yeah. where they slap slap his name on the screen, you know. That that was definitely a nod to good, the bad, and the ugly. He's probably and how the Parasite action. won best film over this, I just don't understand. Yeah, I don't know either. I liked Parasite, but I didn't think... Yeah, but again, you know, I'm biased. You know I'm a big Tarantino fan. Like I said, the last podcast we did together, I was going on and on about this movie all night long. And, yeah. Oh, so obviously I loved it, but... Speaking of underrated I mean, actors, I, Luke Perry, if you watch this in a couple of scenes that he's in... That was cut. He's fucking great in this too. Yeah, I know he. Yeah, he is. He is good. And you know what? You know they say. I mean, I know we haven't gotten to it yet, but they say Bruce Dern. Uh, but uh, you know he he ended up playing uh, Spawn because. Oh, uh, uh, who was it that Tarantino Burt wanted originally? Burt Reynolds got sick and died. Yeah, Burt Reynolds. 
fuck Burt Reynolds, man. I mean, I'm not saying I hate Burt Reynolds, but he could not have played that part as well as Bruce Dern does. Yeah, he could have, and uh, like I said, it was supposed to be uh, him and uh, the guy from Smokey and the Bandits whose name's dropped out of my head. God damn it. Happens to me all the time, man. Yeah. Uh, I think it's funny, like, you and I both, like, when we sit down and write an article together where we actually have time to, like, put stuff together and work it out and edit it and everything, we got all the all the references that we want and need, but when we just riff on a, on a podcast, we're both, we're old men, dude. <laughs> yeah, we're it doesn't come fuckers. Up. It doesn't come off the top of our heads like it used to. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get this joke for the first two times that his last name is Lancer, and he talks about he was from Bingle. Right.
That's what I say every time. I'm Rick fucking yeah, Dalton. Yeah, it's that simple as a Rick fucking Dalton. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's what I say every time, and then people are like, Yeah, what? there's only and one like, sad thing is that those moments are really moments. But once you get that moment, you fight your ass off to get to that moment again. Oh, yeah. I, I've had conversations with, you know, like, I've been doing stand-up comedy for so long now. I have, like, 200 friends who do stand-up comedy, and we do shows together in various combinations all the time. And, you know, whenever you whenever you have a really good set, you know, your friends are there. And when you have a really bad set, your friends are there, and they'll talk to you and say, you know, hey, the highs and lows of stand-up comedy are a real thing, you know? It's not It's not all in Come on, baby. You know? It's not all in your head. Like Yeah, I you... love how tense this scene is, too. I mean, it's just... If you know the whole Manson story... Then yeah. you don't have, he don't have to do the work to make this scene as intense as it is. And if see, he this don't, is, I think I think this scene ha- was one of the things I was talking about earlier, where Charles Manson was originally included in this scene, and then they cut him out because I think Tarantino wanted to save that. You know, he wanted to save some stuff for the last scene because if Manson was here right now, he'd see Brad Pitt and be like, "Hey, that guy saw me at the Tate House the other day, so kill him right now." Yeah, I, I think, I think that's probably where the, where the editorial, you know, well, uh, there's a story that goes with this too. Uh. Gary Kent and John Bud Cardos was filming a movie there, and they had their doom buggies broke down. And they said they didn't know how to get them fixed, and they had to go into town, get a mechanic, and lose the day. And then this little swarmy guy comes up and says, I can have them fixed in the morning if you give me 40 bucks. They're like, done. So they come back the next morning, and... Gary sees that uh, the trucks, doom buggies, are not fixed. So he goes over to this squirmy guy and says, I have a friend coming. His name is John Bud Cardos, and he's not as nice as me. And he'll rip your fucking lungs out if you don't have those fucking boom buggies fixed by the time he gets there, and that is two hours. So in two hours, those doom buggies were fixed. Yeah, so I think I remember. Go ahead. No, I was just saying. I think I remember that story from uh, Helter Skelter. Um, the 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 novel, the book, uh, Helter Skelter. I think that was one of the stories that was in the book when they're talking about you know. Uh, I I don't remember. I haven't read the book for a long time, but I I mean I have a copy of it, but. I haven't read it for a long time, but I, re- I seem to remember it flashing back and forth 
from the actual like Manson trial to all of the stuff yeah. leading up to. So it. Charles Manson yeah. was afraid of John Bud Cardos. <laughs> oh, another story is that Tex here, no Clem, was uh, screwing with uh, some of the guys while uh, they were filming a movie there. So John said, I'll fuck this shit, and grabbed Clem and took him up on top of a dirt hill and threw him over the other side. And all of a sudden, he heard bam, 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 and bullets were flying everywhere. Uh, Clem had the bunt line and was shooting it. And Bud ran up to Gary and said, holy shit, if I knew he had a live gun, I wouldn't have done that shit. (laughs) I'm really surprised that Tarantino, being like the film geek that he is, I'm really surprised that he didn't include, like, that That seems like something that would be right up his alley when he's got this scene where they're at the ranch and everything, like you're saying, if they were still filming movies up there at the ranch, then you would totally think that that would be something that Tarantino would have included in the film. You know, yeah, just like the last Brad film that Pitt I know that was filmed at the Spawn Ranch where the Mansonites were there. Yes, I've done a lot of research in this little subgenre. Is H.G. Lewis's Linda and Abilene in 1970? That was the last movie they ever filmed there. Yeah. And there's even a couple of uh, Manson's girls in the movie. Really? Yeah. Huh. Well. And you can get it on Vinegar Syndrome's The Lost Films of H.G. Lewis set. I was going to say, I I have most of uh, H.G. Lewis's flicks on, like, something weird video, but no, I don't have the Vinegar Syndrome set. Nope. They offered that set to something weird video, but for reasons, once you get it, hardcore porn, H.G. Lewis did not want those three films put in the official category of the something weird collection. (laughs) Right? Yeah. There's uh, Linda and Abilene, which is a softcore sex western, uh, all the girls do it, which is another softcore porn film, and black and I gotta say it like that, black love. The only <laughs> one of the few all hardcore, all black porno films. Is that how you have to say the title? Black love. Yeah, that's the way he said <laughs> the movie. Black love. <laughs> that's the way they say it in the trailer. <laughs> So, yes, H.G. Lewis directed uh, Hardcore. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I guess I never went too far into it. Um, I've had some I've had some rough time navigating the Vinegar Syndrome website looking for movies. So oh, the I, website I have, is utter shit. That's why I don't own more of the titles than I do. Right. Yeah. yeah. But... Yeah, but I have, I mean, my Something Weird video collection is gigantic. I have I have a ton of that stuff from the old VHS. There's actually a video store 
uh, right near me that uh, specializes in VHS tapes, and they get something weird video VHS in there all the time. So I'm constantly there, obviously not lately since, you know, the virus is keeping everybody inside. But I every time I go downtown, I go in there and grab up some something weird video. But then, of course, I've always collected it on DVD and Blu-ray, and now uh, with the way the Something Weird website is set up, if you go on there and you order something, they'll burn you off a copy right then and there and send you send you for, you know, five bucks or whatever. So Yeah. ASPA just sell you know, awesome set. It's called uh, Drugs, drug, drug Tales. It's a collection of their drug movies. Right there, red is Sexy Sadie, Sadie Kreenwinkle, Manson's second-in-command, who took over and nearly killed Gerald Ford. They got pretty good TV reception there at the ranch. Well, this, the ranch was halfway between Phoenix, where my mom and dad lived, and California and L.A., where all of this happened. I wish we could have had Vicky on tonight. She uh, she would have. You said she lived around this area when all this actually happened in real life. Yeah. We really can't stress to all you younglings how much of a boogeyman. I'm 49 years old, and for most of it, about 45, 46, Charles Manson was the boogeyman. Yeah, well, you know, I I have I have weird I have weird. Uh, conflicting feelings about the whole Manson thing. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in all kinds of weird things from UFOs to ghosts and Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster and serial yeah. killers and, and stuff, you know. That, all of those things are really interesting to me, and I have tons of books and and movies and, you know, all this stuff that I've just consumed over my life and yeah Manson is a strange enigma to me because as far as I know there's no evidence that he himself ever actually killed someone but you're right no, he was like apology. yeah he was a boogeyman character who inspired people to kill people he was so a fake, yeah that, and really I'm being honest he used pimpology he used he was yeah, a pimp before he was a cult leader. So yeah, he used and his it's pimp true. techniques to get the girl, these naive, rich girls and boys to do what he wanted. And that, and I mean, that in and of itself is freaky enough. Like, I can't even, you know, I, like I said, I'm almost 50 years old, and I have a hard time convincing girls to even have sex with me. Criminy. Imagine trying to convince a girl to murder someone for you. Yeah. 
But the thing is, is that ever since I was born, when this happened, he was always on the news. Uh, let's see, Helter Skelter the movie. And my last yep. count, there's over 150 Manson exploitation films out there. All right, here we go with some Bruce Dern. I love his dog here. He was really great in uh, The Hateful Eight, too. Yeah. Of course, it's Bruce Dern. But, yeah. Well, yeah. He's one of those guys that always put out great stuff. But because Hollywood thought he was weird, he never did get the roles he deserved. Tattoo pretty much killed his career. Yeah, he's going to, you know, when he dies, uh, you know, it's going to say in his obituary, you know, it's going to say Bruce Dern, character actor, dead at Whatever age he dies at, you know. <laughs> yeah. I I always hate that when they refer to someone as a character actor. It's like, what what does that really mean? Like, so they were great at portraying random characters. Cool, but isn't that what an actor is supposed to do? Oh. Like, <laughs> the way we defined it is character actor is someone who's in little parts. But they always stood out, and if you've seen them in the movie, you knew they were going to be freaking great. Right? Like the king of the the character actors, Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what happened when he died, right? They were like, Harry Dean Stanton, character actor. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Speaking of David Lynch, as I did earlier, holy cow, man. Harry Dean Stanton did some of his best work with David Lynch. This is why I that say that was an unproven huh? story that they never done. Is that uh, it was always said that Manson had the girls fuck George Spahn, but there never was any proof, and none of the girls ever said anything. And as big as their freaking mouths were, you know. Now this. This is why I say this is the climax of the movie, even though there's yeah. still another half hour left. Because this, in this, we're in a we're this deep into a Tarantino movie, and there hasn't been any violence yet. But you know as well as I do, <laughs> there's a scene. This the end of this scene.
I love this song, the music that they picked. Right. I mean, even here, you're like, oh, God, he's fucking dead. You know what I mean? Yeah. The soundtrack to this movie is kind of divisive for me. I know we were talking about it a little bit earlier with some of the tracks from, uh, like, old films, which Tarantino loves to borrow from. But this, the soundtrack to this movie is kind of divisive for me, not this song in particular. Um, uh, but this is one of the Tarantino soundtracks where he actually kind of seems to lean into some more, like, popular tracks from yeah, the era. Yeah, but he but did like use we... popular versions of it, like Jose Feliciano's version of uh, California Dreaming. Right. Yeah. No, it's like we were saying before, like, he had, yeah, he did have to set the... He did have the story that I told you earlier right here with a couple of changes. Right. He he did have to set the tone to make, you know, to set the set the scene. But, yeah, it's just kind of weird because he's always been so known for, like, grabbing random tracks that you've never heard before in your yeah. life and putting them in the movie, yeah. you know. See, this is a combination of both stories. Oh, uh, fix it. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, see, like I said, it's kind of weird. Like, you, you get this deep into a Tarantino movie before there's any violence, so you're just like, oh. Yeah, you okay. didn't fluff with these old school stunt guys because they were tough as fucking leather. And they right? wouldn't take your shit. Right? <laughs> Ladies. <laughs> And I love how he makes his punches seem like gunshots. <laughs> Ladies, it's still the 60s. Don't come any closer. <laughs> I guess that's what they mean when they say Tarantino is kind of a misogynist. <laughs> No, he beats the shit out of them ladies just as equal as he beats the shit out of the guys. Yeah. Not sexist. Not those ladies, though. Not, well, some of them, but not right now. Nothing says relaxing horseback tour of the hills behind the Spawn Ranch like someone suddenly being called away because someone else is close to dead. Yeah. <laughs> right, he's just riding in there and all of a sudden... Draw off, 
And that's the one thing I've always hated about uh, Tarantino's soundtracks is there's 200% more tunes on them. Right. I mean, listen, I, see, they could have used the regular version by the Mom's Papa, but no, they used this beautiful melancholy version by Jose Feliciano. The thing you know, he's that, riding the same motorcycle Steve McQueen did in the Great Escape. Right. The thing that annoys me about some of the Tarantino soundtracks, um, I guess not so bad in some of the newer films, but, like, in Kill Bill, he cut songs off, like, really short, like, uh, in the, uh, the House of the Blue Leaves scene in Kill Bill Volume 1, when he keeps, like, cutting the songs, like, one right after the other into, like, really quick little short versions. Like, stuff like that annoys me, but he doesn't do yeah. that so much. I, I guess that was just kind of like for Kill Bill. Well, but the longer version, it, it plays out. Yeah. Mm. And, yes, I own it. <laughs> you you want to come in and watch my episode of FBI? <laughs> Hell, yeah, I got a six-pack in the back. We'll go in and order a pizza. I've never had moments like this because I can't stand to hear my own voice. So if someone says I'm good, I take their word for it. If someone says I suck, I take their word for it. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That's a podcast thing. Us comedians want to understand. We're like, "Uh, well, you don't talk for two hours. I wonder if they had to pay Al Pacino an extra day's pay for that one shot of him watching TV in the bar. No, they probably filmed it all in the bar. <laughs> I know. It's I'm nice seeing Al Pacino around. act in a movie and not go full Al Pacino. <laughs> Even in the... That last Scorsese one. He goes fucking full Pacino in a couple of scenes. Oh, in uh, in The Irishman? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah. I don't think he has the capacity to not go full Pacino anymore. I mean, well, I think Tarantino. This. Well, yeah, but, you know, I think Tarantino reeled him in and was like, hey, I just need you in a couple of scenes where you play a low-key, uh, you know, producer and just act yeah. like a normal human, <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> I love it. He's like, hey, that's Bobby Hogan. He's a good guy. <laughs> and Gary Kent told has told the story out how he always knew who did the stunts in the movies because of how they fail. All right. Yeah. Uh-oh, he's almost about to go. He almost went full Pacino there. He was getting a little raspy and talking okay, fast. I wonder where is Nebraska Jim? Minnesota Clay. <laughs> and that movie starred, uh, what's his name? God damn it. Cameron Mitchell. Oh, Nebraska Jim? Yeah, except that it was Minnesota Clay. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Directed by Sergio Cabucci. Which really is the number two director of Spaghetti Westerns after Leone. Yeah, right? Which leads to the wrong story. When uh, Burt Reynolds did Navajo Joe, he was pissed off and he called up his agent and said, You got the wrong Sergio. What do you mean? I meant fucking Leone, not fucking Corbucci. <laughs> right? <laughs> and if you haven't seen any of Sergio Corbucci's westerns, you need to. They're fucking good. Yeah, like, yeah, Leone is definitely, like, the more highbrow end, but no. Yeah, you got to see. No, you got to see. I love went and made new posters for this. Yeah, that's what I was talking about earlier when we were talking about set design and and whatnot. Uh, You know, like, it's amazing how much, like, that's what I was saying. Compared to <laughs> Reservoir Dogs, which takes yeah. place mostly in an empty warehouse, and then you fast forward all the way to this movie and just see how much. Of, like even right now, we're watching home movie footage. You know, and like if you're wondering, yes, that was actually true. They did not shoot any live language in any movies, right? And Ringo, there were over eighty Ringo films. Red Blood, Red Skin, Telly Savalas. Yeah, Telly Savalas. <laughs> yep. Operation Dynamite. <laughs> Antonio Margariti. You would know him <laughs> for uh, uh, Cannibal Apocalypse, a.k.a. Invasion of the Flesh Eaters, or the Alpha 6, or Alpha 6 series. He was the sci-fi action guy. Right. This is an actual stunt from Operation Dynamite. And the way... (laughs) And the way that... uh, Like, uh, 
it reminds me a lot of like uh, Diabolique. Uh, yeah, that's what's supposed to be a light, frothy uh, action film like Diabolique. Right. Yeah, it has that same kind of vibe to it. And yes, Capuchin was a real actress back then. Bottomless Bloody Mary. I want to fly this airline. <laughs> Put more bloody and less Mary in it. Just give him tomato juice. Don't tell him there's no booze in it. He won't know the difference. <laughs> I love this is a lack of romantic breakup scene. Toluca Lake. What the heck is going on with Brad Pitt's hair in this scene? Oh no. He's got a pompadour now. This is a plot point that I never really understood. Like, why all of a sudden does he not need Cliff to be his stuntman anymore? He can't afford I mean, it. Well, well, that's what he says, but wouldn't you assume that... Okay, I understand that he was doing extra stuff for him on the side, like driving him around and yeah. doing chores for him around the house. But when it comes to like making films, doesn't uh, isn't a stuntman included in your contract when you make a film? Yeah. I, I mean, I would assume. I don't know. Of course, this movie well, takes he place used, in the 60s. Well, once they get back to L.A., no one will hire him because they think he killed his wife and he threw Bruce Lee against the fucking car. Yeah. Like, I love this fucking version of Out of Time with the orchestra. Right. And compare this to the scene where uh, Polanski comes in early in the movie. Right. And what airport is that? I don't know, but it reminds me a lot of the opening scene from Jackie Brown. Bingo! That's the same one! <laughs> baby, 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 you're Is your dog, is your dog watching you sing right now, Steven? No. Oh, alright. <laughs> you feel, you feel more comfortable singing when your dog's not around. Uh, I just love, I just love Oh, man, he's down to hours now. Yeah. Well, the movie's almost over. We're done with days now. We're down to hours. Yeah. This is... I've never understood people said Tarantino's movies 
play too long. They always play short to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I understand, you know, I understand people who think that, yeah, Tarantino's movies are too long, but, I mean, that's, if, if you're a real fan of cinema, then, you know, it's like my mother always says, my mother is a voracious reader, and she will read the longest books she can read because she says if she really loves a book, she doesn't ever want it to end, you know? Yeah, or to quote Roger Ebert, he's never seen a good movie that wasn't too short or a bad movie that wasn't too long. Taco Bell, the Cinerama. (laughs) Der Wiener Schnitzel. Yeah, well, I heard and it's that's like damn good food out there, especially like German food. Right. Yes, back then in the seventies, we would there would be enough interest where you could have a German joint in your town if it was big enough. Right. <laughs> Yeah, we lived in the days where you could go out and have choices of what you're going to eat, not what franchise you're going to eat at. <laughs> the the town that we live in... Uh, oh, what's the dirty movie place's name in the real world? What What's a dirty place's name yeah, in the that real place world? Yeah, just pointed out, he said, what, isn't that the dirty movie place? What are they doing a premiere there for? <laughs> you know what theater that is? The New Beverly. That's Tarantino we really wanna, Theater. We really want to film at the New Beverly, but we can't get permission from the owner. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do love that uh, Sharon and her friend went to the upscale Mexican joint And they went to the real one Yeah So Tarantino lives right up The hill from the new Beverly That's no secret But <laughs> So uh, A lot of times if you Go to the new Beverly He'll just pop in to watch a movie like, he'll just be there and... Yeah, 90% of the movies they show at the New Beverly is from Tarantino's collection. Yeah, a lot of the movies are from his personal collection, yeah. It's it one of the last... Night of the year. And you could, it was so quiet you could hear the glasses clink on cocktail glasses. The New Beverly is one of the last theaters in in America that still actually shows movies on film. That's because it's near impossible to get prints nowadays, man. Yeah, I know. I actually tried to... uh, We have an independent movie theater uh, here where we live, 
and I talked to them about doing a film festival, and I actually talked to uh, Lisa from Something Weird Video, and I asked if I could uh, get some prints, uh, some actual, like, film prints from her, and she said, I can send them to you, but it's going to be really expensive because they weigh a lot of, they weigh a lot, and I need to insure them, and I need to make sure I'm going to get them back, you know. So I actually talked to um, uh, Mike Weldon from Psychotronic and asked him if he would be willing to drive some prints up here to me. And he said the, he said the same thing. He said, well, I, I will, but you know, I, I need insurance to make sure that they get there and back and everything is, is safe, you know? So yeah, actually dealing, I, I do think that's the reason why uh, Beverly uh, is able to still put on like real uh, film because Tarantino lives right up the, around the corner and he has his movie collection at home so he can just throw it in his car down the hill and, and put it on, you know? <laughs> I love you can't blame me. Read you right here. You're like, oh, God, what's going to happen? Because like I said earlier, he kept this tight. He even released two or three fake endings on the net so people would not know how this movie ended until the day it came out. Which is a motherfucker to do nowadays, because everybody loves to spoil. Yeah. I See, when I really want to see a movie, and I'm really invested in a movie, I don't read anything about it until, you know, after I've seen it, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, I hate that shit. It, like, <laughs> yeah, people, people love the... People love to spoil a movie for you nowadays. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, Abby and I talk about it all the time, and it's like, it's not just about spoiling a movie. It's just like people, it's about everything. People like to feel like they know something before you know it, and they want to prove it to you. Like, they don't care. You know, they just want to be like, hey, I'm the smartest person in the room. Yeah, I'm, I'm, they want to be the first one to get out the spoilers. Yeah, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the first one. I'm, I'm gonna tell you, you know, like, just stupid BS. Ah, just shut the fuck up and just get the fuck on. Go, and I love it. Right before everything happens, away we go. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I've done a lot of drugs in my life. I don't I don't really do drugs anymore. Occasionally I still smoke pot, but I you know, I have done a lot of drugs over the course of my life. Uh but like I said, I don't really do drugs anymore. But man, the last thing I would want after smoking a 
LSD laced cigarette is to have to deal with uh, a group of <laughs> serial killing uh, yaks. <laughs> Hippies who are stoned on LSD. Yeah. Oh, now, that's the um, switch. They're not stoned. They're not on LSD when they went to kill them. He's the one on LSD. <laughs> Yeah, Tony's like, okay, motherfucker, you want to see what it's like to deal by a crazy motherfucker who likes to kill people on LSD? Fucking deal with it. And this is how I would react, and this is my cadence if somebody walked up to my mother, my house, right here. Right. Goddamn motherfucking hippie with. I I can see that. I I've never been to your house, but I've seen lots of pictures of you hanging out at your house. I can see you walking out just like this in your bathrobe, being like, "What? Hey, who the fuck are you?" <laughs> this seems like the kind of neighborhood you live in. <laughs> You're doing this seems like the kind of neighborhood you live in. People trying to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh I was googling some stuff I was googling some stuff earlier about some certain scenes from this movie so yeah. I could you know so I just trying to find out some stuff that we have so we'd have make sure we had some stuff to talk about when we did the podcast tonight. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of websites actually list this movie as a comedy. It has its comedic elements, but no. Well, yeah, I mean, all Tarantino movies have an element of comedy, but this, like, just you know, when you when you are <laughs> you fucking hippie. What, the when reason pull that it scene up is so funny is because of how real it is. Right? Everybody's had a moment like, hey, what the fuck are you doing down there? <laughs> right? Like, no, right where Abby and I live, the house next door has high turnover. It's like an apartment building, and the people next door change, like, every year. And it seems like every single person who moves in there is a drug dealer because we just have constant friggin' people pulling up at all hours of day and night. And it's like, how fucking stupid do you have to be to pull up in front of a house where someone is dealing drugs and just sit there in your car with music blasting for five minutes while your friend goes in to buy drugs, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And we're always looking out the window like, hello, can you please just shut the fuck up? I don't care if you're (laughs) buying drugs. Can you just do it it quietly? (laughs) (laughs) 
Found it all lunchbox. I love it. This is the most Tarantino esque scene in the whole movie. <laughs> I would I would buy a bounty law lunchbox right now. Yeah. That's one of my favorite lines in this whole movie. Every show on TV except for I Love Lucy Murder. I don't know. I think that Ricky beat the shit out of Lucy after them shows was over. I know how a Latino he gets. <laughs> right? Lucy, get your fucking ass in here right now. <laughs> you would know, you friggin' angry Latino. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of feel sorry for him because you know, wrong house, wrong time, wrong motherfucking people. Now, I this love is the part right here. This is the, really what she was thinking about doing, but she chickened out with the Kasabian. She really did think but, about doing this, but she chickened out. Yeah, this is the part of the movie that I'm confused about, though, because it's right before the whole, you know, ending. And now, am I incorrect about this? Because, like I said, I haven't read Helter Skelter in a long time. I do have a copy of it, but and I have seen a lot of stuff about the Manson murders. But is it true that 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 before? Or they they murdered Sharon Tate and and the people at the at the Polanski house. They did actually attack another house in the neighborhood before that, right? Is that no. is that true? Or no. is this is just this is just the Tarantino killing Hitler at the yeah. What happened was yeah. they showed up to the Melcher house because Manson knew every bit of the fucking ground, right? See, I was confused about this because I did when yeah. I first when I first saw the movie. We're in Tarantino I, like, land, two hundred percent right now. Well, yeah, yeah. I just couldn't remember because I I did think but that yeah, I had read they about. Yeah, up in the house and just busted in and killed the. So, but but the the earlier pieces of the movie, which were still probably fictionalized, but like with Brad Pitt seeing Manson in the ice cream truck, that, that actually, someone did actually see Manson in the ice cream truck in the yeah, neighborhood. Yeah, it was a bread truck to be exactly a wonder bread truck. Right. Before the, before the murders. And then. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> ah, shit. Bad idea. <laughs> Yeah, I just couldn't remember. I, I mean, I know obviously at this point we're not trusting Tarantino with, uh, with actual history anymore. After yeah. we saw, after we saw Hitler get it's shot down the in the dog. <laughs> My dogs aren't mean, but they're kind of assholes. Yeah, your dogs are a lot smaller than this one too. <laughs> I love how quiet it is. 
All's quiet except for the plop of the dog food. Whoa. <laughs> right now, you're thinking the first time, oh, shit, he's, they're going to kill him. I have this song on, on 45. You know, like I said, I collect vinyl. <laughs> I, uh, well, I have didn't this, we need I, any proof of uh, him having a Tennessee accent? Well, my singing and his right there just match perfectly, doesn't it? <laughs> 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 yeah, I think you could pull that song off with your Tennessee accent. more. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this does though uh, the last 10 minutes of this movie is fucking brutal. I can definitely say What the fuck is this bullshit? And I love the song that he picked. I'm amazed no straight horror film has used this one yet. Right? Because this would be a hell of a song for a murder. Well, look at this. If it's more murder set piece. <laughs> right? Circumstances. T- tonight. Oh, he knows this. I'm not really a tough guy, but I would always hope that I would react this way if someone, like, came at me, like, all, I'm going to fuck you up. I always kind of well, hope I would kind of be... If I feel really rough, I would probably be one of the most irritable sons of... Well, I am the one of the most irritable son of a bitch you ever made. You are real, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> what the fuck is that? <laughs> I was real as a donut, motherfucker. What the fuck? <laughs> I couldn't take anyone seriously after them saying something like that to me. I was real as a donut, motherfucker. Bang. These wide shots of him pointing the gun and Brad Pitt pointing his finger and then going back and forth to the wide shots, though so those are those are really nice. Those are nice shots. I know you don't. Uh. Oh yeah. Fun <laughs> Rand. I don't know your name, but I remember your hair. (laughs) Oh, here we go. We're on a horsey. 
I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the deafness. No, it was something dumber than that. <laughs> then I realized that fucking dog was there. That <laughs> got to me. Oh, shit. Of course, if there's going to be an attack dog in a Tarantino movie, he's going to bite your dick off. Hey, what else she's, would he a, do? she's a bisexual biter. <laughs> he's a bisexual biter. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, you know why she gets it the worst? She gets her face bitten off and all that. She's the one who cut the belly out of Sharon Tate's be- cut the baby out of Sharon Tate's belly. Right. In the real world version. <laughs> yeah. So that's why we don't give a fine shit how bad. Oh, it's violence against women. No, it's the fucking ass. It's the devil getting fucking killed. We don't give a shit. They did shit that's so brutal, we're still talking about it 49 years. No, 50 years after the fucking day. Yeah, that's why I say, like, so many people criticize the ending of this movie saying that, you know, oh, this just proves Tarantino's a misogynist. It's like, yeah, but this these are real people who did horrible things who, you know, just like at, like we were saying before, at the end of Inglorious Bastards, you know, we see all of the n- biggest names in Nazi history get killed. I mean, really, if you went to an audience of people my age, well, I'm 49 and older, we were back going, yeah, motherfucker, when this was going on. Right. And that's exactly how I'd react to this. Fuck. <laughs> uh oh, here comes my baby. The what? gun theory being paid off. This is one of the first times I've seen the gun theory used in the movie where you forgot about it. I love this right here. Let me in, let me in. Even Mandy knows when there's a gun being shot to get the fuck out of Dodge. I mean, were you really expecting this when he first walked out with it? He even has the badass music. No, we talked about it earlier, though. This is definitely like a Chekhov's gun situation, but I really did not expect him to. But like you said, it is hinted at midway through the movie when Brad Pitt goes into the shed and the 
flamethrower is still in there. Yeah. And it's a so, hell of a climax. Just whoosh. <laughs> <laughs> and right there, we're like, joined. Oh, he's dead. He's dead. Well, the movie's almost over, but we're joined now by Ellie Leach. Ellie, do you have anything you'd like to say about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Oh, she's purring, but she does not have anything that she wants to add. She said, fuck, this movie ain't got a cat in it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She said, okay. This movie got a dog hero. I'm a cat. I don't give a shit. I love how he's covering up that he had That's not verbatim. <laughs> I'm here to do some devil shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think he said, I'm here to do some devil shit, but that's not verbatim. I love the look on his face. <laughs> the cop. <laughs> uh, what the fuck is she saying? So that that is a nice wrap-up, though, when, you know, and he says, uh, you know, I'm not going to die. You can check on me tomorrow. Kind of going back to what, obviously, we've been talking about this whole time about this, you know, the movie being about, you know, passing on from one generation to the next. Like, yeah, he's not going to die. Yeah. He's not going to be, he's not going to be Leo's stunt double anymore, but he still has a a life and a career ahead of him, you know? Yeah. Oh, of course, if you know the real story, let you know. He became one of yeah. the bigger stunt directors in the 70s. Right. I mean, just yeah. think about it. Once I hit the paper, stunt man kills three hippies attacking them. God damn. If that's not going to get him any work. Uh, right. <laughs> I love the fact that he's behind the gate and, you know...
some bummer trip. Yeah, bummer trip. <laughs> they were on some bummer trip. <laughs> but believe it or not, I've got a flamethrower. <laughs> it still works. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> hippies on okay. That's kind of a funny little comment, too, because, you know, like, we were talking about the whole point of the movie is about, like, moving from the 60s to the 70s. And so that's kind of a telling little line, too. Everyone okay? Well, the fucking hippies aren't, but... Except for the hippies. Again, a and symbolic it's like the song that he picks is an ode to Lily Daintree from uh, the tale, the story, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. And if you watch the movie, this is a very sad and somber song. They do the symbolic opening of the gates to welcome him into the next generation of filmmaking and then I really love this pull away shot too I love how it goes dark for that for that time and then pulls back out over the parking lot yeah I like that shot a lot uh, when we and we're all first sad went, because we know, cause we're mad that this actually didn't happen right <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that's with the view of Rick Dalton and the four people who <laughs> lost who their actually, lives on that yeah. night, and that, that, that changed the whole generation. Right. Once upon a time. Man. You know, Steph, that none of the credits was in the movie to the end of the movie? Yeah, it doesn't even open with any credits. And and which is kind of strange because Quentin Tarantino is pretty famous for like, even if he does a cold open, he usually like throws a whole bunch of credits in at the beginning. I think he w- he kind of wanted to be more like he wanted you to be more surprised with who was going to be in the film. I mean, obviously, well, if you once upon a time in the West, there's no credits in the movie. Right. Well, there is, but yeah. the title of the movie does not show up to the end of the movie. Right. Yeah. So. 
I mean, obviously, he was was definitely doing a once upon a time in the West, once upon a time in America, kind of like, you know, uh, homage kind of thing, so. But. This had Ethan Hawke's daughter, uh, Kevin Smith's daughter. Yeah. A lot more would pass by. I was going to say something about that, too, uh, earlier. Like, it was kind of weird. Willis's daughter. It was cool. It was kind of, in this movie. I didn't see him. It was kind of weird seeing a Tarantino movie for the first time ever that wasn't uh, just because you mentioned Kevin Smith's daughter. It was kind of weird seeing a, a Tarantino movie for the first time that wasn't associated with the Weinsteins, and of course we all understand why he he walked away from them. Yeah, but, we've uh, seen today that in two days the entire Fangoria infrastructure has freaking collapsed. Yep, yep. But but Kevin Smith is still making movies with the Weinstein Company. Which, no, he's I no. Mean, his last uh, I don't really understand. Films have but. been uh, trunk movies, right? Roadshow. Every one of his movies have been Roadshow. The past three movies ever since. Uh, first Easter egg in his credit sequence. Oh yeah, this is a good one. <laughs> This has to be a tribute to the Orson Welles uh, Frozen Pea commercial. Yeah, right. (laughs) They should have. They should have had him be. They should have had him be drunk though. Was it the Was it the Orson Welles Frozen Peas or was it? Don't burn your throat as much. Let's throat Much like friggin' 
soap operas to me. I just don't like that. Depends on how good you got your TV set up. If you have it set up to a certain way, it looks like waxy shit. Yeah. Yeah, we have, uh, you know, because, of course, we have, like, a really, you know, nice friggin' TV, so it's, like, between the... your TV settings. I forget how, but that's the screwed it up. I've got the something weird uh, to close that. I got the something weird Blu-rays. Everyone but uh, Chesty Morgan. And in the name of God, why would I want the Blu-ray clarity on Chesty Morgan's hideous boobs? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? That's what I'm saying. Like, like the first Blu-ray that I ever had was uh, was Creep Show. And then we've got the friggin' 4K TV, and I'm just, like, watching that, and I'm just like, this looks like shit. You know, like, it just I, yeah, it I've turned got me... the You're right, DVD you know, the I mean... Blood Trilogy, and they look gorgeous. They look just right. like pristine 35-millimeter film. Right. So... I've got, well, they right, put out right two Herschel Gordon DVD Blu-rays, blah, 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 and the last ones. But thank you for being on, and I hope you people like it. And we'll see you again Sunday, Saturday, when we do Joker. And Sunday for, well, uh, you can guess the subject from the title if you can. Good. If you can't, well, you shouldn't be listening to the show. And that's Come Back to the Movie House Hug Baby. Mm-hmm. All right, brother. Thanks for having me. I'll catch up with you soon. Peace and good night, everybody.